Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. This is not a special effect. It's just uh, getting older. And I think that's, um, just as a reminder, whenever you see me preaching, you can get, you don't even have to guess, you'll know what I'm preaching on for the next several bits, uh, the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to pick up with that uh, this morning. And so I'm going to start by reading a couple of passages. You've already heard a few uh, passages from the Hebrew Bible uh, earlier. We'll incorporate that into our time together. Starting in Hebrews chapter 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then jumping to Colossians chapter 1. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, which is, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This ends the reading of God's word. So the last, over the last several months, I've actually participated in a set of formal discussions about a rising crisis in the church and in particular in, in the PCA in our churches. I don't remember if you were there for this. Um, Charlie, in January, we had a meeting up in Seattle among church leaders in Oregon, Washington, maybe from Idaho and some other places to acknowledge and address the problem, which is this. We are running out of pastors. Uh, folks are not going to seminary like they used to, both locally in local churches and in the organization with who I work, Reform University Fellowship, a, a campus ministry, Presbyterian campus ministry. We don't have either the number I'll just be a little candid here, or even the quality of candidates to pastor people like we used to, like we did um, 5, 10, 15 years ago. But behind that problem is one that you probably hear about because it's talked about in the news, even outside of church circles. And the problem is, well, people aren't going to church anymore, at least they're not going to church like they used to. And so we actually may not need as many pastors because the number and size of churches is shrinking. Now you can obviously see the tension in that. If you are a religion like we are a part of a religion that is about reaching and equipping as many people with the good news of Jesus Christ as possible and for as long as possible, that is a problem. Even behind that problem, right? It's problems all the way down. It's like it's turtles all the way down, right? Behind that problem is one deeper. 
Because our time now is one in which Christian teachers, pastors, all Christians really are struggling to communicate our beliefs in a way that simply connects. Connects with our neighbors outside the church and honestly just connects with other Christians, particularly on issues of things like race, gender, sexuality, marriage, class, ethical integrity, lining up how you live with what, with the way that you say you believe. And it's not just the culture outside the church that's pessimistic, but it's also Christians. The church that's jaded and pessimistic as well. So Christian pessimism, at least here in America, is fed by changing circumstances culturally, things that we've been going through over the last 30, really the, over the course of my lifetime, but it's really coming to a head over the last 15, 20 years. Because in the United States, there at least used to be a shared sense of cultural order. Folks kind of believed the same basic things. They kind of acted the same way, but now it's like being on an escalator. The ground has just moved underneath our feet, and some of us are falling down, and some are just trying to get our handholds to stay up. See, in other words, even if people didn't believe from the heart the things of uh, Christianity, the formal set of beliefs that um, were expressed in the Christian faith, they at least kind of acted like it. The majority kind of acted on those beliefs as if kind of they were true, or at least functionally true. That's what some people refer to as cultural Christianity, but that is just not as pervasive. It's even evaporated in the Deep South where we associate that trend as well. And then let's just acknowledge some people saw through some of that, saw that cultural Christianity was a bit compromised too. So as Christians, we are trying to figure out what to say, how to live, how to orient our lives faithfully in response to Christ. What should we say? What should we do? What are our resources for witnessing to Christ, for mission, for discipleship, to live in union with Jesus? Well, one good tool in our kit, not the only tool for sure, but one that reaches across culture in time and that has been shared by all Christians comes from the Apostles' Creed. It's what we talked about this morning, creation. The confession, an explanation from Scripture that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth, has ethical and even missional implications. Why is that? How is that? Well, there's, there's so much to explore there. There's certain things I'm not even going to touch. Charlie will get into the hot button issues on creation. But I think I'm going to give you the substance here because this is really what, where, where it lands from the creed and from Scripture. So there are a couple of key things going on whenever we say that God is maker and that we want to walk out of here, uh, if not wrestling with, ruminating. First is this, that he is the source of all things, that God is first and preeminence, that he has no partners, that there is no equal to God in existence or experience. That God is the source. He, he made all things that exist. And that seems very basic, but it's actually somewhat contested. He made all things that exist, whether it's visible or invisible. Whether it's on heaven or in heaven or on earth. Angels, forks, 
demons, gluons, whatever it is, before God created, there was only God. No one and nothing else. Now, maybe you'll remember from last time I was here, sometimes I'll, I'll refer back to the context for the writing of the Apostles' Creed, which happened in the second century. And the prevailing take of, on reality at the time was that the universe had always just existed. And they believed in God. Some of them believed in only one God. But they didn't believe that the gods or God made it, but just that the gods kind of intervened at times, kind of pushed levers for their own pleasure, for their own joy, because kind of the view of the gods was the gods were the biggest, the richest, the most elite players on the stage of reality, so they got to do what they wanted. They were the original, like, real housewives of Beverly Hills or whatever. People just kind of, you know, referenced them kind of like we do uh, those characters. So, for example, when you hear the scientist Carl Sagan, by the way, does anyone know that name? Okay, Carl Sagan. Because I was sitting in the sermon last time. There's a hand. I see that hand. Um, I hate using references that people don't know. So it's just the majority of it of you know who Carl Sagan is. That's good. If you don't know, you can ask everyone else who does know. In the 70s and 80s, he was the, there was a, um, a physicist named Carl Sagan, or some kind of scientist. He had a show called Cosmos on, on PBS, and he was noted for saying this. This was kind of his bump phrase. The cosmos is all that, y'all know it. You raised your hand. Is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. And at the time, it landed like it was just freaky. Whoa, this guy is saying something heavy. It's deep. It's philosophical. But if you had asked pre-Socratic philosopher like Thales or even Aristotle what they thought about Sagan saying that, they would have been like, yeah, right. So what? That's not a big deal. But there is a big deal to that. Because there's moral implications to the position of saying that the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. And frankly, it's moral implications that no one really wants. All right, let me lay it on you. See, that position that the universe is all that is, that there's just kind of a flat uh, plane of reality, that would make the world, the universe, us, everything that exists, all that is, just as it is. So that means that whatever is in the world and whatever happens in the world is simply just natural, essential, just the way things are. One thing is not better than the other. And so something like human dignity is not inherent any more than there's aardvark dignity, right? It's just, you know, the universe, things there are, that are, everything just is, right? And so that means, here's where we get to how that view lands ethically, we have no grounds for judging one thing to be good or bad versus another. One thing to be good or evil versus another. Death, for example, is just a part of the way that things are. The strong conquering the weak, the rich using the poor, is just the way things are. There's no vantage point a perspective outside of the cosmos, outside reality, that could change or spiritually assess the way things fall out. Or why we should even care one way or another about things like justice, or fairness, or compassion, or mercy, or equity. And so even trenchant atheists 
who hate religion, like Richard Dawkins or Patton Oswalt or John Gray, acknowledge this. And for, in my opinion, they do their own kind of hand-waving and their magic to get around it because most people don't want that kind of dog-eat-dog world that this view would give us. And we don't have to. Why? Because with the Hebrew Bible and these beautiful passages that we believe are inspired revelation, a communication from God, and again in the New Testament, which we believe the same thing about that, in these scriptures, a completely different view of God than reality is presented. One that makes the world meaningful now and directed and shot through with purpose with a sense of right and wrong, anchored outside of creation, anchored in God himself, anchored in the maker. So what do we believe? What is the source of creation? What is the, the goal of creation? What is, what is it about? God is almighty. All right. We've talked about that before. Was completely free and completely satisfied in himself as father, son, and spirit. There was no psychological dissonance within God. The divine persons shared love eternally and completely, according to places like John 17. Yet in love, and not out of incompletion, not for the sake of spectacle or neediness or loneliness on God's part, but because the cup of God's love runneth over, as the psalmist says, God created from nothing everything. And he created everything to share his love and to know him and to know life is a gift. You see, life is not only natural or organic, but somehow it is also charged with divinity, with God's touch, because God has revealed himself as good in Israel, in Scripture, and in Jesus. So the world is created in love by a creator who is outside of and not part of the world. That's the first thing that we assert when we do that, when we say that God is the maker of heaven and earth. God is in control of everything. He is the source of love. He's the source of goodness and not captive to the world. But what else? Why else is confessing that God is the maker of heaven and earth? Uh, how does that help us? Well, the second is actually a little bit more contested. And it's this, that God created Everything good. The creation was made good. In Genesis 1, passage that we heard read earlier, we are told repeatedly that in creating all that exists, it was made how? Tov me'od. Very good. God's intent and accomplishment in creating was to display his glory, his wisdom, his joy, and his love. So the Bible highlights over and over again, really even culminating in, in, in Jesus, that the physical world is not inherently evil and not irredeemable. The world and its cultural products, too, the things that come as an extension of, of, of us creating cultures, things like cities, like what we prayed about, don't need to be escaped. The world of the flesh and created matter is made good. A good God created a good world. And the upshot of all this, and this is another sermon for another time, is that evil cannot be attributed to God. He is not the source of evil. 
Likewise, the, the fourth century uh, teacher Gregory of Nyssa said about God making all things and how the world is filled with his glory and goodness. If a man in broad daylight freely chooses to shut his eyes, it's not the sun's fault when he fails to see. Likewise, ignoring the gift of the material world and the, even the goodness, broken though it is, still goodness of the material world, the fruits of culture, to ignore that as a form of hiding. Now, for sure, just because you, you know this from your own experience, creation is broken. Why does it seem like it's so messed up? Well, but the scripture even says that it is. For example, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 20, talks about how sin has affected and marred and smudged and cracked everything that has been made, including us. Here's what Paul says there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, right? That's what we feel. That's what we see. That's what we sense. Why? And it will obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. The creation has been corrupted. It has been distorted. But that is not what it is by nature. That is not what it is inherently. It is marked with goodness. From God. God created us, you, me, our friends, the world good, and it is headed back that way by redemption through Jesus. Let me just say what's obvious it is a sick world that needs healing, but it is not an evil world that needs destruction. And that is the difference between Christianity and other views. And frankly, it's good to remember this because it is Christians of all people who very easily slip into errors on this and get into what Paul would probably call satanic panic, right? Remember that from the 80s? Watch Stranger Things. Let me just hit you up with Paul's take on satanic panic. First, Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's coming off the top rope with an object in your hand. Just completely talking about it. Here, you want to know what demonic is? Here's Paul talking about demonic. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who? What, Paul? What, what's satanic? Forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Huh? Well, what else? For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Oh, that's in Bible for you. Paul actually calls this forbidding of good earthly things satanic, a doctrine of demons. When I was in college, so much of what counted for Christian spirituality had to do with forbidding good things. Right? You, you weren't supposed to drink beer, even if you were of age, or, 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 uh, or smoke, or chew, which aren't, or, okay, those things are good for you, but they're actually not sins. Uh, you know, all of these, there was all kinds of different regiments. For me, I kind of got scorned because of what I studied. Um, it was like that then, and to some degree, it's like that now. Affirming God's goodness then, in what he has made, both in nature and in through humankind and culture, is an antidote 
is a solution to a kind of legalism that would suggest that we are righteous, not because of Jesus, that we are spiritual, not because of the Holy Spirit. We are closer to God, not because of union with Jesus, because of what we do or don't do, eat or don't eat, how we take care of things in that realm. I want to mention one thing that Paul doesn't explicitly say, but I think it ties in. Uh, it, it can kind of fall, especially in our subculture, that just as uh, forbidding marriage was the issue for Paul in 2 Timothy 4, there can also be the opposite problem, but for the same reasons, which is to denigrate the creational goodness of people who are single. Marriage is great if you are called to it, but not everyone is called to it. Uh, let's make a list of folks. Jesus, top of the list. Uh, probably Paul, as best as we can tell, was never married either. If he was, he wasn't married by the time we catch up to him in the New Testament. I just want to say, you know, if you're single here, or you have someone in your single, you are not incomplete. You are not unfaithful. You are not failing to fill the earth. If you don't get married, you are whole as you are. You are complete now. You are good as God made you and vital to the health and mission of Christ's body. There's nothing wrong with you. You are not a puzzle to be solved with some puzzle with a big piece missing. You're not a yin without a yang. However you want to put it, you are a whole image bearer and are needed and are valued and not just as a foil to the lives of married people. That you are needed by being leaders, teachers, and models of grace and Holy Spirit's power in our midst. So I would just want to encourage us, especially as we talk about reaching the city, congregations need to continue to make room. Hope needs to continue to make room and value singles among us. Those of us with spouses and children should be willing to have to be grafted into the lives of single saints, to learn from them, to enjoy them, to be a family with them. In fact, again, I'll just open up a can that I'll ask Charlie to close. The New Testament actually doesn't care that much about the nuclear family. I don't even know if the nuclear family proper exists in there, but it sure doesn't privilege it or prioritize it. At least Jesus doesn't. You can read Mark 3 on your own whenever he chooses the church over his mom and brothers and sisters. Here's the last thing, though, about God as maker of heaven and earth, that by affirming the inherent and intentional goodness of everything that God has made, the cosmos, world, people, knowing that because God is good and has revealed himself as the source of goodness, we now, as the church, as those who carry Christ's name and presence by union with him, have leverage to look at injustice, to look at evil, to look at brokenness and the impact of sin now and imagine a better world and to work for a better world here and now, so that you can see how this maybe ties into the first point. As Christians, we know that right now things are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in a good world with good people, but they are image bearers that have also been stained by the ruin of sin. And that also means that there are broken systems that are marred by sin, what Paul in other places called the principalities in power. But we know that God entered the world in Christ to justify and to make right the world and people in it. So we are not locked in to seeing the world as it is now, laden with injustice, laden with the wreckage of disease, 
the darkness of anxiety, environmental ruin, and just giving up. This week, I was actually talking to one of my children, and she asked me, uh, going back to whenever we, my wife and I were first having kids, she said, did you guys, were you all afraid about having kids, just knowing how messed up the world is, how terrible it is? And obviously, she's asking because that's one of her concerns, too. And I was very candid to the degree I thought about it 24 years ago. I said, no, I wasn't worried. Because to just be passive in the presence of evil and not strive to see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven would be a kind of escapism, a kind of fatalism that scripture doesn't teach. Christians having children is actually an act of faith, of hope, of pressing into reality of the broken world. We want to be, and we want our children to be, the hands and feet of God serving the world. We want to embrace what Psalm 8 actually teaches, that out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy in avenger. Likewise, just because Christ is coming back, we also don't say, ah, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn anyway. It's all going downhill. Uh, Guys, that's false teaching. That is false practice. That is what Paul would call a doctrine of demons. This is our Father's world. We bear his Son's name. In a real sense, we should be at home in the world. We protest against the disagreeable parts of life. Peace, justice, care for the weak, care for the oppressed, being a voice for the voiceless are the work of Christians. And we support and give ourselves to what is noble, enduring, and hopeful. Because they are glimpses of and even participations of eternity and beauty right here, right now. In things like music, gathered worship, commerce, peaceful times. That is all good. So the followers of believers believe, or followers of Jesus believe that in him, we have encountered the enabling source and power of creation, of truth, of justice, of goodness. And we have come to know the one through whom all things are made, including ourselves. Looking into Jesus' face, we see the blueprint of reality and have come to understand God's good plan for the whole of creation. Won't you look to him or look back to him and find life, creation, good, redeemed life in Jesus? Let's pray.